From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. We are starting, though, taking a look at what is happening in Surrey. As you know, the B.C. government has unveiled its legislation, legislation it says that will force the city of Surrey to complete its transition to a municipal police force. If I were the city of Surrey, I would say the province has made a decision um, and it's time for us to move forward. It's time to stop the delays and it's time to get on to moving towards the Surrey Police Service. That was Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth speaking yesterday. We also heard from the Mayor of Surrey, Brenda Locke, speaking not too long after that legislation was unveiled. Look, we would all like to see this done. We would all like to see our policing uh, stabilized in the city of Surrey. But um, it isn't, and that's the decision of the minister. And so uh, we are now in a position where we have to fight for our taxpayer. There's no doubt about that. So what happens now? Well, joining me is Peter German, the lawyer for a lawyer for the city of Surrey, also a former RCMP executive. Peter German, thank you so much for taking the time today. Hi, Jill. It's a pleasure. Does this change anything? I know you spoke uh, about this. Uh, it's, it seems like it was a long time ago now. It wasn't. But I know uh, you, you mm-hmm. have been speaking about this and about the court action, the petition launched by the city of Surrey. Does the legislation change anything? Well, that's for the lawyers to take a look at, and, and Surrey's lawyers are uh, examining the legislation. But the reality is that at this point, uh, the answer would be uh, no. We're proceeding with the petition, which uh, deals with the minister's decision from July. You know, as the, the clip from the mayor indicated, this is this is really a, a um, an unprecedented move by the province which will impose a huge tax burden on the citizens of uh, Surrey. We're we're looking at something like $464 million over 10 years by the city's estimate uh, if this transition were to continue. Um, So there are a lot of unanswered questions. It's not entirely clear what this legislation will in fact do. Is it a takeover of policing by the province? What is it? So... That remains to be seen. What about the question of whether or not this is retroactive? Because the the safety minister, Mike Farnworth, did say that this was to clarify for Surrey what was going on, also to clarify the police act for any municipality or city moving forward that might find themselves in a position of of changing uh, police forces. Is, Is legislation like this, could this potentially be retroactive? Well, that's obviously one of those issues for the lawyers to take a look at. Um, you know, the, one has to ask why the legislation um, essentially targeting uh, Surrey is necessary if the minister made his decision in July. Um, so, you know, that's an unanswered question in and of itself. Uh, but really, it's the Surrey Police Board that was t- uh, tasked with um, proceeding with this tra- transition. And they've been unable to attract enough uh, police officers to... Uh, to take over the front line. The RCP still has 75% of the resources on the road uh, in Surrey. And at this point, there are 200 from SPS out of 760 working at the RCP detachment. So regardless of all the the laws and uh, court battles and everything else, it's not entirely uh, certain that this, this is feasible to begin with. 
And when you talk about the board and and talk about this move being unprecedented, is that also that also seemed uh, pretty bold, if not unprecedented, uh, when in that release the the ministry also said that if necessary, uh, they would also take over the police board or they would they would appoint an administrator to assume the functions of the Surrey Police Board and to manage the Surrey Police Service. You know, it sounds unprecedented to me. Uh, certainly, it's not something we've experienced here. This entire move uh, to a, a municipal police force is, in and of itself, in Canadian policing, extremely unusual. Most uh, switches from uh, a contract force to a municipal force or, or the reverse takes place with amalgamation. Uh, we saw a little example of that with Abbotsford, Abbotsford and Matsbury many years ago when they amalgamated, when the municipalities amalgamated. You see that in Ontario when regional districts are created. But to simply switch uh, from uh, the RCP contract model to a municipal police model without any uh, defined need based on public safety. Like, what is what is the public safety issue that was being addressed by creating the new police service? We've never that has has never uh, been outlined to the Surrey taxpayer. Um, so, again, another question. So, so does that point to, uh, do you think the decision was a mistake then, the, the first decision when under the, the Civic Council, under Mayor Doug McCallum, who, who campaigned and said he was going to do this, he then went forward with transitioning to the police service. Was the decision by the province to, to rubber stamp that or to say, yes, that's okay, was that the wrong decision? Well, I think it's fair to say that um, the position of Surrey Council is that the RCMP should remain as its municipal police force. So you can take from that whatever you wish in terms of the, the original decision. Uh, the original decision was made, you know, uh, for whatever reason, uh, but not based on public safety. Public safety has never been questioned in terms of the the RCMP's role. Um, so... Uh, yeah, you, you can you can put whatever spin on it you wish. Oh, well, and and looking at, at what's happening now. So as far as as you and the city is concerned, as far as the the petition to the Supreme Court of BC to do a judicial review, that is still going forward. Yes, by all means, uh, the uh, city of Surrey has engaged uh, legal counsel uh, to uh, deal with that petition, and uh, looking forward to uh, hearing from the Supreme Court uh, as soon as they're able to deal with it. And in the meantime, even with this legislation that the province has introduced, and and like you said, it calls out Surrey, and it even says in the legislation it contains provisions that provide clarity and finality to the people of Surrey regarding their ongoing transition, saying that Surrey must provide uh, police services through a municipal police department. So even though that's in the legislation... Are there any repercussions if Surrey doesn't do that, if Surrey continues going ahead, challenging in court, and not transitioning? Well, um, first of all, the legislation has to pass before it's law. Um, The lawyers are examining the legislation. Uh, It is up to the police board, uh, not the city, the police board, to uh, it is the employer uh, in terms of the Surrey Police Service. As I indicated, they've been unable up to this point to attract enough police officers, and that in and of itself is problematic. If you where are you going to find 
another, let's say, 400 police officers to staff up that department. Uh, if you if you find them in the lower mainland, that means you're pulling 400 police officers from other police departments. That is destabilizing. Uh, but it's very doubtful uh, at this point that they're going to be able to do that. Uh, they've been working on this for a couple of years already. Um, so regardless, as I said, of, of the changes to the law, uh, the court battle, it's not entirely clear that this is even feasible, let alone the dollar cost that we spoke about uh, to the Surrey taxpayer if it were to go ahead. Right. And th- then again, the, the north of $460 million? North of 464 that is considered to be a conservative estimate over 10 years if the transition were to take place. Uh, be- there are a number of capital costs that are not included in that potential capital cost. And that's, you know, the Surrey Finance Department's uh, analysis. So that that is why, you know, the mayor is is obviously as as concerned as she is uh, uh, for the potential for the the implications on uh, on taxes and so forth. And when you talk as well about the Surrey Police Service not being able to hire enough officers and then and then shouldn't be pulling officers from other departments, wasn't that one of the arguments, though, that the public safety minister brought forward when saying that the RCMP have vacancies and the plan had to show that the RCMP wouldn't be pulling officers from other forces? Right. And uh, the minister did uh, mention that. And in fact, the RCMP did provide a plan at the end of 2022 outlining how it would uh, deal with its vacancies. And in fact, if I'm not, as I understand it, uh, late last week, the RCMP provided an update to mayors and CAOs, uh, which indicates excellent progress in terms of attracting uh, recruits. They went through the same thing that so many other uh, businesses did uh, and governments did uh, after COVID, uh, that difficulty in recruiting. And it appears that they are over that. So uh, they're they're making great progress. um, And uh, it it doesn't appear to be an issue. Certainly with respect to Surrey, um, we made it very clear in our a report in the fall of 2022 uh, that was submitted in parallel to the RCMP report that Surrey RCMP could staff back up uh, the uh, 200 positions that are, are currently filled by SPS officers very quickly. Uh, a number of SPS officers have indicated that they would like to transition over to the RCMP. Plus, the RCMP receives a regular um, number of recruits every year. Uh, from the training academy, so it's it's not onerous uh, by comparison to to what will happen if the if SPS has to recruit some 400 more police officers from somewhere. Do you know how many SPS? I know that number has been out there, but do you know how many at this point SPS officers who have said they would be interested in moving to the RCMP? Yeah, uh, the, I don't have a precise number. The RCMP have indicated that a number of them have, and in fact, apparently uh, some have already transitioned, uh, a few of them, but I don't have exact numbers. In fact, we, we don't have access to uh, SPS numbers. Uh, the numbers that we rely on, uh, the city of Surrey, uh, date back to September 13th, so about a month ago, when uh, they indicated that they had 200 resources working with the RCMP and another 132 that are not working the front line, but are working at their office as well as civilian staff.
Right. All right. Uh, And Peter, just one other question about the legislation, because I I know, like you said, it hasn't passed yet. And the province saying that phase one of the police reform amendments are expected to be introduced in the spring of 2024. So does anything change, though, at the point when and it's anticipated it will? But does anything change when that legislation passes? Yeah, again, that's really hypothetical, Jill. You know, first of all, we uh, Surrey has to get its legal advice on uh, the legislation. The legislation itself has to pass. Uh, we've got the outstanding court case, which deals with the minister's decision in July. So there are a lot of different uh, moving parts here, and I wouldn't want to speculate on that. All right. Well, Peter, thank you so much for joining us and for bringing us up to date on this today. Appreciate your time. You're most welcome, Jill. Thank you very much. Thanks for being with us on this Tuesday afternoon. Well, Richmond RCMP have put out a video. Its goal is to help educate pedestrians and drivers about dangers on the roadways and making roadways safer. But the video itself is getting a lot of feedback that I'm guessing the RCMP weren't banking on. If you have not seen the video, so it starts with a woman getting ready. She's getting ready to go for a walk. She's wearing a hoodie, a dark hoodie puts on earbuds, is crossing the street, and then there's a driver, and you see the driver from in the driver's seat. The driver then, uh, you hear a phone, either a text message or a phone rings. The driver picks up the phone. Clearly, something you're not supposed to do when you're behind the wheel, picks up the phone, is looking at the phone, and at that point, almost hits the pedestrian in the crosswalk. And the text with the video that Richmond RCMP released, said it says, pedestrian safety is a two-way street, what pedestrians and drivers can do to make our roadways safer. And that takes you to the information from Richmond RCMP. But a lot of people are taking issue with how, in particularly how the uh, pedestrian is portrayed in the video. So joining me now to talk a little bit more about this is Kyla Lee, a lawyer with Acumen Law. Kyla, thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about this today. Thanks for having me. Have you seen the video? I I have. <laughs> and what is your reaction to the video? Oh, gosh, you know, my first thought was, wow, this feels a lot like blaming the victim. Like, here's this woman and, you know, OK, fair enough. She's wearing all all black and she's got her headphones in so she can't hear what's around her. But she's in a marked crosswalk and somebody who is using their cell phone while driving almost mows her down. And they're they're sort of pointing the finger at her for not protecting her own safety. Uh, that's really bad. Yeah. And, and even if that's not the message, I think they were meaning to put out there. It, it is. I mean, I. I I guess you could take from that the things she's doing maybe aren't the smartest things to do when you're out on a dark kind of rainy day. But as some people have pointed out as well, the driver is doing something illegal. The pedestrian is not. Yes, and there are even cases historically in in British Columbia where people have been convicted of dangerous driving for doing what the driver was doing using a cell phone in front of a marked crosswalk and not uh, paying attention to the crosswalk. I think the message would have been much better received if they'd depicted a situation where, for example, it was um, nighttime or dusky, um, the driver stops at uh, an intersection but it isn't entirely clear and the pedestrian comes out from some bushes or something like that. One of those more risky situations that we typically 
physically encounter, but not a situation where, as a pedestrian, you're expecting that you are going to be seen regardless of what you're wearing in that situation. Right. And, and like you said, too, the pedestrian, she's she's in a marked crosswalk. She's, uh, and again, yes, maybe uh, not the smartest thing to have a hoodie all the way up and to have earbuds in uh, just for, for street smarts, but again, not, not actually breaking uh, any laws. Uh, d- the driver, though, so when, when you see this, and I know you deal with these types of cases all the time, is there any question at all that what the driver is doing? I mean, how many laws does the driver break in this video? Uh, well, he's driving without due care and attention. Uh, he is not looking, uh, not yielding to a pedestrian at a crosswalk, um, and also distracted driving. So there are three very clear violations of the law um, that the driver is engaging in in the video. Right, which I think also maybe is why uh, people are taking issue with the, the caption being pedestrian safety is a two-way street, where maybe this should, may, should maybe be a, an educational video on a reminder on what uh, you're allowed to do behind the wheel with your phone and what you're not because uh, I know Kyla you and I have talked about other videos that have been put out whether it's by ICBC (laughs) or other groups they tend not to, to, to perhaps do all of the homework before putting them out it seems like there's a real difficulty for both police and ICBC in finding effective ways and entertaining ways to get important road safety messaging across. And I get that, like, you know, creating a video where you're, you know, here's some reflective uh, bands that you can wear on your arm and wear bright colors and, and things like that are, are you know, dull. But if your message is being lost in controversy over the fact that you're blaming somebody who's doing everything lawfully for the actions of somebody who's violating at least three laws, it's hard to uh, it's hard to find um, sort of a silver lining to the fact that they're trying to put across an important message. Right, because even then when you click on on the release, the link that was sent out with the video, I mean, it is it is important information. For, for some people, it might seem like common sense, but I mean, it includes things like be careful for pedestrians, to be careful at intersections, watch for drivers turning left or right through a crosswalk. Uh, drivers might be focused on oncoming traffic and not see you, which are all true things. But but again, it's 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 not it's certainly not at the same level, I don't think, as a driver on the phone behind the wheel. Absolutely. And, you know, it would be nice if if the sort of messaging that's um, put forward in the video in relation to the, the pedestrian was more clear. Um, you know, all of those things, you have to click through the link to get that information. But if you're watching the video, the point of the video is to give you that immediate visceral reaction that tries to educate you, not to get you to click a link and then read information, because most people aren't going to do that. <laughs> No, that's true. And that that is very true. You're going to watch the video and then have the conversation, which a lot of people are having, you and I are having, about the video itself and whether or not that is the best way to get that information out there. Uh, Kyla, I know you, you do deal with a lot of, of cases and deal with distracted driving. Is there a way, though, do you think, I mean, I see it all the time as well, and, and people even stopped at a, a, a red light or waiting to cross the street, people are buried in, in pedestrians staring at their phones. And I even look at it and think, you know, Mm -hmm. all it takes is one out of control driver or one person who's not paying attention and you're really at risk. I I mean, do do you think is there's a role isn't there for pedestrians to play when it comes to making sure they are keeping themselves safe? 
Oh, absolutely. As a pedestrian, you you should take actions to make sure you keep yourself safe because I, I don't think it's reasonable to expect that every driver is going to be driving perfectly. We know that this is not the case. And ICBC will take that into account. If you get hit and you were doing something that was negligent or contributory, uh, you contributed to your own injuries by the actions that you were taking, ICBC may reduce the amount of money that you get paid to compensate you for your injuries um, on the basis of the fact that you uh, that you were sort of contributorily negligent. Typically, that would only happen in a case where there was a lawsuit, so in a situation where somebody's convicted of a criminal offense. But even still, um, you want to make sure that you're putting yourself in the best position possible so that if something does happen to you, you can say, this was not my fault and I deserve full and fair compensation for what's happened to me. So in the case, and again, going back to the video, so if we if we change a couple of variables and maybe it's somebody, it's it's dusky or it's it's just as it's starting to get dark out or it's dark out, it's raining, you're wearing a black hoodie, you're wearing all black clothing, you have earbuds in, you've got your hood all the way up, you've got your, your maybe you have your phone out and you're jaywalking. Those would actually be factors then if you're involved, if somebody hits you and, and you're going after them, but those then would become factors in, in that lawsuit. It could become factors in a lawsuit. It also could become factors in a trial. If the person who hit you is charged with a criminal offense or given a traffic ticket that they dispute and you're asked to testify in court, the fact that you you know, were doing all of these things might give rise to a defense for that person and they could escape liability for their bad conduct on the road as a result of you essentially um, creating a situation where you created more risk for yourself and limited the responsibility that the court attributes to that person. And, and in a case too where the driver, not in this video, where the driver is clearly answering the phone and very, and is distracted, but in a case too where the driver has done nothing wrong, but suddenly there's a pedestrian in front of you, and again, not in a marked crosswalk, dark, a dark night, and all of those factors, I, w- I would imagine too that, that if there was a lawsuit or it did make it to court, that's also the argument of the driver, and that I wasn't doing anything wrong, and, and I couldn't, I, I, my reaction was because of the scenario. Absolutely. And there have been lots of instances in in uh, litigation over the years where people have been acquitted of offenses because a pedestrian was somewhere where they weren't expected to be wearing clothes that couldn't really be seen very well um, and essentially put themselves in harm's way. So the driver was found to not be at fault. The law has recognized that pedestrians do owe a duty to other people around them as much as uh, drivers owe that duty. It's just different duties with different obligations and responsibilities. It almost sounds like maybe Richmond RCMP could have put out a series of videos and rather than everything that's going on in this one, there could have been different scenarios that they walked people through. Oh, absolutely. And I think a series of videos would be a great idea because, you know, the more information you get out there to educate the public, the more different types of behavior you're going to change and target. And if your videos are good and entertaining and don't generate negative controversy, you're probably going to have a really positive discussion about responsibility as a pedestrian, one that should be had, especially this time of year where it's starting to get dark and rainy. Right, exactly. And I think that part, we could all kind of relate to that part on on the video. Uh, Kyla, we're going to open up uh, the phone lines for uh, our next segment, but I've, I've been told there's a caller on the line with a question for you. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but are you okay to take a quick question from a, a listener? For sure. <laughs> all right. So hold on one second. And Tyler, you have a question for Kyla? Yeah, thanks for taking my call. I really appreciate it. Just uh, had a quick question. So I was... Um, uh, on a, on a bike and got hit by a vehicle and found the 
um, the driver to be 100% fault, um, you know, ICBC was kind enough to, you know, work me through rehab. But I have no recourse in um, suing ICBC or the the driver uh, because of the tort law. I'm just curious how that helps anyone, uh, especially with a, a biker who's going to have a lifelong injury now. Hmm. Just, your, just curious. Yeah, as I understand, there was some uh, discussion around potentially changing that aspect of the law when it came to uh, cyclists and pedestrians because of problems um, uh, in sort of the level of risk associated uh, with those. Um, Although I don't believe those changes have come into effect yet and they wouldn't affect your case. Um, But if the driver had been convicted of a criminal offense in your circumstance, then you would have had the right to sue. So there is still some protection for the right to sue, but it's very limited in British Columbia. All right, Tyler, hopefully that uh, helps with your question. We will leave it there. Kyla, thank you so much and for uh, offering up some legal advice there as well. Thank you so much for your time and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us on this Tuesday afternoon. Well, this is a very interesting new program, and it's going to provide free legal advice to anybody who has experienced a sexual assault in this province, and they will be able to get that legal advice, opening the doors in for, so we don't see cases where people are looking for that advice but simply don't have any way of accessing it. So joining me to talk a bit more about what this is going to look like is Jennifer Core, Community Legal Assistant Society uh, supervising lawyer and also the project manager for Stand Informed, which is the program we're talking about. Jennifer, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Thank you for having me. Uh, This sounds like such an interesting program. Can you tell us a little bit about the background and how this came to be? Uh, Yes, of course. We're very excited to be launching Stand Informed for legal advice for anyone who's experienced sexual assault here in BC. We also run another service called Sharp Workplaces that provides free legal advice for anyone who's experienced workplace sexual harassment. And through that program, uh, we were having people approach us who had experienced sexual assault, um, not work-related, and there really wasn't another service available uh, to refer them to to provide them with some legal advice. Um, So we're very glad that uh, the government uh, has stepped up uh, to support us in funding this. Um, We know uh, through data from Statistics Canada that only uh, about 6% of sexual assault cases are reported. And in British Columbia, 37% of women over the age of 15 have experienced sexual assault at least once. Um, as well, uh, young people, Indigenous women, uh, people who identify uh, as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transqueer, two-spirited, are more targeted um, um, from sexual assault perpetrators. And you mentioned that, that the province then has provided funding for this and to get this program up and running. So how will it work then if somebody is, is, has experienced this and, and wants to get legal advice or, or wants to try and use this program? Um, so people can contact us in a number of ways. They can give us a phone call um, or 
send us an email or uh, look us up online uh, by Googling Stand Inform Community Legal Assistance Society, and you should get our webpage. And our application form is on there. And um, once we have your information, one of our staff um, will contact you um, to take some um, a little bit more information. Um, and we don't need uh, a lot of details about what happened um, on that intake call, uh, just enough to know, uh, you know, some contact in- information um, that an assault has happened and then we'll ask you some questions to put you in touch with the lawyer. Um, we'll also want to know if you might want to meet the lawyer by telephone or video conference or in person. Um, the service is delivered by uh, two, myself and another staff lawyer, so two staff lawyers and a number of uh, lawyers on our roster who are located at different parts in the province. So if somebody does want to meet in person, we might be able to assign the case to someone who's in their area. And then it's really uh, a meeting um, between the lawyer and the client uh, that's uh, completely confidential. Um, It's an initial three hours. And then um, if the lawyer feels they need more time, they can ask uh, for an extension of time. So we really hope the lawyers will be able to provide someone with advice on what someone's rights are, what their legal options are, and we take a trauma-informed approach, so really trying to support the person to do what's best for themselves. And and where are the lawyers coming from that are taking part in this? So we have lawyers who have uh, joined our roster from different law firms um, across the the province, really. Uh, Some are sole practitioners, some are at uh, larger firms, and um, we're really um, pleased to have everybody um, be able to offer this service, and uh, people have, the lawyers and the staff have all received training um, to take a more trauma-informed approach as well. So that means understanding how trauma affects someone and um, Really, how do you, how to work with someone so you're not uh, re-traumatizing them while you're trying to provide support and information? And is there any? Is it sometimes too? Would somebody potentially be reluctant to report or to talk to a lawyer about a sexual assault for fear that that there might be something that is automatically the police are informed of this, or that it might go further than the person is comfortable committing to at that point? Oh, thank you for asking that. Yes, it's important people understand that everything's protected by solicitor-client privilege. So the lawyer can't disclose anything, and and definitely uh, the police would not be aware of of what um, is discussed. Um, Everything's confidential and between the client and the lawyer. Um, And we do know that uh, from information that often people are reluctant to come forward to talk about um, sexual harassment or report it because they're afraid they they won't be believed or they won't be taken seriously. Um, and there is also um, a lot of victim blaming. I believe um, in the data from Statistics Canada, uh, they, they do talk uh, about um, 
the high percentage of people who've indicated that they felt blamed for for being sexually assaulted in some way. And it's really important, and we hope that this service will help people understand that it is in no way someone's uh, fault if something like sexual assault happens to them. And uh, we really encourage people to come forward, get that advice from a lawyer to be able to talk about it and understand uh, what your rights and options are. And when you talk about that, understanding your rights and your options, but also the fact that, that the lawyers that are involved with Stand Informed, like you said, uh, they take that trauma-informed approach. They, they want to understand where a person is coming from, want to make sure that the person feels safe. Uh, is, there, is there kind of a, a crossover or... Um, it, it sounds also similar, almost similar to talking to a counselor, but do, do people need to know that this, this isn't, it's not a counseling session, but it is a session to get legal advice? Yes, and, and I think that's also very important. So we, we hope to take a holistic approach to that, and that means trying to also connect people with other supports that they may need. So uh, counseling or victim services or, um, you know, in some cases, uh, other supports such as housing or financial, depending on what situation a person is in. Um, and sometimes people may come to us already through referral from a victim support organization, or they may be working with an advocate. And um, if they're more comfortable to meet with a lawyer, with their support person, they're also able uh, to do that. Um, or um, as well, um, even a friend, if people uh, need that support, because we understand that it's difficult. But definitely, um, even if people may choose not to proceed with a legal option, we can still connect people with um, other supports. And one of the other options is that often people don't know that they can make um, what's called a third-party report. So an organization will help you report the incident against the perpetrator, uh, but you would remain anonymous. And sometimes that's an option that people might want to know about uh, because that puts uh, the information about the perpetrator in the police's hands uh, should something else happen or or, um, another sexual assault uh, occur um, so that they have that information. All right. And, and Jennifer, you mentioned, so this uh, this uh, program offers up to three hours for somebody to get legal advice once they've initiated uh, the, the, the process. Uh, is it 24-7 or what are the hours that that Stand Informed is, is, um, is able to, to take the calls to give the advice? Um, so we really, uh, class operates on regular business hours, so 9 to 5, but you can, of course, send an email or um, leave us a message at any time, and then we uh, can try to get back to you uh, to connect. And, uh, of course, then uh, when you're meeting with a lawyer, that, that would be um, something that the lawyer and the client would arrange. So, um, but... But definitely, um, we would try to be as accommodating um, as possible. But our regular hours uh, are 9 to 5. 
All right. Well, Jennifer, it sounds like it's a much needed and a very important service that's now being offered. Thank you so much for joining us and telling us more about it today. Thank you so much for having me on, Jill. Really appreciate it. Well, we know shoplifting is a huge issue in parts of Metro Vancouver, parts of BC, and we've talked about the numbers in the past. In fact, after an anti-shoplifting lifting blitz that was put on by Vancouver police partnering with some local businesses and business improvement associations in that short period of time, it was just a three-week anti-shoplifting blitz. 217 people were arrested, 47 of those were repeat offenders. And when we looked at the numbers as well of charge approvals or charge recommendations and charge approvals, there were not a lot of charge approvals, even again with 47 of those arrested repeat offenders. So with this situation getting worse, it seems all the time, does that mean more businesses are going to close down? Well, Clint Melman is joining us now, President and Chief Operating Officer at London Drugs. Clint, thank you so much for making some time for us today. Thanks, Jill, for making time for us on this very important issue. Well, it's something, unfortunately, I'm sure uh, employees at London Drugs at different locations see all the time. Uh, shoppers see this happening as well. Uh, and, and I know that in many cases, these crimes are becoming even more violent. What types of, of shoplifting, uh, what types of crimes are employees having to deal with? Yes, uh, Jill, the escalations in crime and violence in our communities across the province has reached a crisis point, and our staff, our customers, the citizens are frankly afraid for themselves, their families, and they see a deterioration in their neighbourhoods and urban centres. We're talking about organised retail crime, uh, and we're talking about very violent offenders. We had an employee, as an example, approach a customer that was trying to conceal some product in a bag. Uh, Our employee simply approached them and suggested they either pay for it or leave the product behind. The person put the product down and the employee was struck with a hatchet, as an example. Um, You know, very common, an employee threatened with a knife when approached to offer service to someone uh, concealing product in the store. Um, Very, very common. And and we see this all the time. And it's not just the employees. Uh, An example in, in Calgary, which is not unusual for Vancouver, a customer using a walker was approached by another customer who they didn't know and never had any interactions was threatened that they would be stopped. Um, In Victoria, a staff member punched in the face while trying to recover a product from an individual who was stealing hundreds of dollars worth of product. Um, You know, this type of behavior of being punched and violently attacked, um, assaulted verbally, physically, sprayed with bear spray, are sadly all too real in our communities. And despite our best efforts to try and get government's attention over many, many years on this, we just don't see action from them. And quite frankly, um, companies like London Drugs and many of our retail colleagues, many citizen groups and downtown business associations have had enough. Uh, just to go back to, to something you said there, the, the employee who was hit with a hatchet, is the employee okay? Uh, thankfully, they recovered, but for obvious reasons, that employee doesn't want to work in retail anymore. And that's sadly a story that we see. And it's not just the employee that's physically hit. It's their colleagues. It's the customers around them, the psychological damage. And this is despite spending hundreds and hundreds 
of percent increases on security. We go uh, to a very great e extremes to make sure that there's nonviolent encounters. We teach our staff nonverbal uh, or verbal de-escalation skills uh, and to make sure that they're. Our number one concern is that every theft represents a potential harm to our customers or our staff. And it's the violence against staff and customers and the safety in our streets is that our primary concern. And when you talk about that as well, that it's it's happening in, in different centres, are there certain areas where it's worse or, or you're seeing more of these types of crimes and violent crimes? We see it consistently no matter where we are in the province. I would say that some of the traditional downtowns, uh, downtown Nanaimo, downtown Kamloops, downtown Nanaimo, um, Victoria, Vancouver, as an example, Prince George, um, can often have a very uh, dramatic um, escalation, partly because of, of the the older neighborhoods. Um, it's just a little bit easier. Some of the stores are a little bit easier to get in and out because a lot of the local businesses may have uh, closed around us, so we're the only game in town in some of those places. And what has London Drugs uh, had to do then as far as, and I'm sure this doesn't stop it, but, but does it make a difference when you hire extra security or have, uh, have measures in place trying to stop this? Well, Joe, I think where it does make a difference is for the psychological safety of our staff and our customers. But quite frankly, um, there is almost no consequences to these repeat offenders that come in they know that the chances are low that the Crown Prosecution Service will uh, pursue charges. It's incredibly demoralizing to our staff when they hear things like it's not in the public interest to pursue charges. And from our staff's perspective, from my perspective, we are the public and it is in our interest to take care of our employees and our customers. So it's very frustrating when we see this repeat, and we're not talking one or two, these are sophisticated criminals with long histories, multiple, multiple times, and they're just, they know that there's very little or no consequences to them, so they continue to commit the violent crimes. Um, with the Premier uh, talking, I, I, you know, he was asked about this earlier today, and he's been asked about it before as well, and he talked about the fact that there are more prosecutors uh, that have been hired and, and that he, he acknowledges that this is a problem. Do you get the sense that anything is changing or that anything actually is being done to address this? Uh, frankly, no. Um, we're not here to prescribe to the government how they should solve it. They're elected and hired to administer justice and create laws to keep people safe, and they have the authority, accountability, and the responsibility and the budgets to draw upon to, and hire the best expertise to make change. And that's our, their job. And as citizens, as businesses, uh, we have to hold our, our politicians and justice administration officials to account. We've often said that if someone was coming into an MP, an MLA's office, a Crown Prosecutor's office, a judge's office, and defecating in the corner, stealing things off their desk, threatening their employees with violence, uh, those type of things, you can bet that the laws would have changed by now. So the only thing I can think of when the government has created this sort of open season on service employees, retail employees, it feels like a bit of classism that it's okay to commit these crimes in retail locations but we see intense security at those government institutions.
You make an excellent point. And at the very least, the doors to those places would be locked and people wouldn't be able to come in freely. That's obviously not something that you can do at a retail store like a London Drugs. That's right. And the alternative is what we're seeing play out in the U.S. quite dramatically. U.S. cities like San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, their downtowns are becoming a ghost town as major retailers leave those cities because they can't afford to remain open. Um, but also, more importantly, they can't afford the human toll that it places on their employees and their citizens. We routinely hear from customers saying, you're my favorite store or a, a local competitor of ours is a favorite store, but I, I just don't feel safe coming down to the downtown anymore, and I'm sorry, I have to shop somewhere else. And those are really heartbreaking because ultimately that impacts our employees, their livelihood, and their hours. The theft alone also is an enormous financial cost that we would have otherwise been able to put into reinvestment in stores, opening new stores, paying employees differently, um, educating. And I think the other aspect, Jill, that's often overlooked is consumers right at this time when they have such financial stress, they're paying about 1.5% to 3%, depending on which study you want to look at, uh, more for their products in this inflationary environment because of the cost of violence, uh, vandalism, and theft at retailers. Hmm. Uh, exactly, and, and certainly not a time, not that there's ever a time that people want to, to be paying more, but but not a good time for that at all. Uh, Clint, you mentioned, and, and not that I, I want to focus on this a whole lot, but you did mention defecating in a corner. Is that something that is happening inside London drug stores? Jill, sadly, it happens all the time. That sort of vile behavior, uh, spitting on employees, spitting on customers, um, defecating uh, inside or immediately outside the store is that type of behavior has become all too commonplace, not just at London Drugs. Of course, we're talking all retailers. Um, the Retail Council of Canada has been very much in the forefront of trying to help governments understand the impact that this is having on the safety of our streets. And uh, sadly, I'm aware that this is a Canadian issue, not a, just a local issue. Uh, will you be closing stores then? Is that, Has it got to the point where that is a possibility? Obviously, Jill, we don't want to take that step. And that's why we're trying to have governments understand and step up to protect our employees as enthusiastically as, well, frankly, they changed the law pretty quick to, to deal with the theft of catalytic converters. Or they changed the, some regulations to support small business for the vandalism, but we're not seeing that same enthusiasm from government to create laws and justice administration to protect the people in all of this. And it's our people first, and quite frankly, in some of the locations in downtowns, we're having a heck of a time attracting employees who just don't feel safe. So sadly, yes, we may have to close some stores, and I think those are the tipping points as we've seen in Vancouver, where small businesses are having to close due to the high cost of operating, of which theft and violence is contributing to that. Hmm. Well, it, I mean, it sounds extreme, but it also uh, makes sense when you lay out what's been happening and how things have escalated. Uh, do, you, do you have a sense of when a decision might be made or when people might uh, have their London drugs closed down? We're going to exhaust every possible opportunity before we ever make that decision to close a store. We also have leases that we have to respect and working with our landlords. And out of respect for our landlords' employees, of course I wouldn't be able to share this over the media of which stores at this point, but I can tell you there's active 
discussions underway internally that have we reached those breaking points in some downtowns and Vancouver being a notable area. All right. Well, Clint, thank you for joining us and for bringing us up to date on this. I appreciate your time today. Thank you, Jill, for bringing this important issue to the public. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.